My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be interviewing Darlene Nikan. She is the elected leader of a grassroots organization called Northern Starlight Citizens of Saugeen, the members of which are off-reserve members of the Ojibwe Nation of Saugeen No. 258 in northwestern Ontario, north of Thunder Bay. As with so many indigenous peoples across the continent, Nikan's people have endured generations of attacks on their culture and traditions by the Canadian state, and they face extreme poverty and homelessness even as corporations profit from destroying their land and from destroying the basis of their traditional ways of living. To struggle against this ongoing colonization, Nikan, her group, and allies have begun a grassroots home-building movement they are calling Bimadasawin, an Ojibwe word meaning life. It is a way to directly address the poverty and homelessness that they face, and to create a basis for a resurgence of their traditions. They are building homes on the land, near their trap lines, off reserve, so it is also an expression of their treaty rights to the land. Nikan has said elsewhere, quote, They're still calling it Crown Land. We're taking it back because that's our land. That's our Anishinaabe land. That's where we live from, end quote. There is a long history, of course, of colonizers dividing colonized people in order to conquer. Scholar and activist Benita Lawrence, in her book Real Indians and Others, documents the many ways that the Canadian state has exerted power over indigenous people and their lands and attempted to destroy indigenous nations by creating and manipulating such divisions. From the original treaty processes, on through residential schools and the different versions of the Federal Indian Act, and up to the present. It seems that the Canadian government did this yet again when the Ojibwe Nation of Saugeen Reserve was created in the early 1980s in a way that left many of the people of that nation excluded. Nikan and other off-reserve people were promised housing, yet despite tireless organizing, they have never received it. They have continued to suffer from the government-imposed divisions. The Bimadasawan Cabin Building Project is an act of self-empowerment, people taking steps to meet their own needs. But more than that, for the grassroots off-reserve people at the center of the project, it is also a way to build skills and to pursue their traditions on the land. It is, as Nikan has said elsewhere, them, quote, going back to the land and being sovereign on our land, end quote. In my interview with her, Nikan talks about the struggle that she and other off-reserve people from her nation have engaged in and about the recent Bimadasawan cabin building campaign. I spoke with her by phone from northwestern Ontario. My name is uh, Darlene Nikan, and I'm from the Ojibwe Nation of Saugeen Indian Tribe, number 258, from the northwestern um, Ontario. We, I don't like to say this, because I don't want to sound corrupt, I don't want to sound biased or anything like that against anybody, but I'm only stepping out in the truth of what we are going through, and as a people of uh, Saugeen, under the government of our leadership. The thing is, we're under this Custom and Usage Convention where we have only 21-year reviews to the conduct of the chief and headman, and that's what makes it so hard because now this government that we are under seem to have lost the good mind of, you know, helping the people in the good way under treaty like it's the way it's supposed to be. Like I said, I don't want to sound accused. 
cohesive until this is settled. And that's a struggle that we're on. We're, we're here as off-reserve people is because when you live off the reserve, you don't uh, get no house, you don't get no help from the reserve. It's just like totally cut off and you're pretty well, you know, thrown out into the world to fend for yourself with only a status card, you know, and it gets, it gets hard because it doesn't really protect you on the outside because I don't know, for some reason people don't like that. Yeah, and we live under the provincial system. And just to uh, interrupt to clarify, when Nikan talks about the provincial system, uh, she's talking about the provincial social assistance system or welfare system. Which is, uh, to me, my own personal view is, uh, you know, another controlling act under the Ontario system. As off-reserve people, we struggle out here. When we had signed this chief in, okay, over 30 years ago, 30 years ago is a long time to wait and be patient while they get ahead and get everything. And whereas we're off-reserve people and we're getting shoved off by that government, 30 years is a long time to wait for a house. 30 years is a long time to have patience for these people to come and talk to us. Still to this day, they don't. Our leadership does not acknowledge us. They won't uh, come and talk to us. We don't know why. We don't know what we're doing wrong. We're always asking, what did we do so wrong not to get equal rights as the people on reserve? And, you know, and since we're off, we're always being, you know, treated, treated like crap. We just get constantly pushed away and not acknowledged. Like over 30 years, we signed that paper in and we signed that, that chief in. You know, still to this day, to this day, 2013, nothing. That's why we're so getting frustrated. We're so almost at the end of our ropes with these people, you know, and trying to stay on the legal side of the law. But, you know, it's hard when people fool around, play with you like that. Then meanwhile, all the other people are suffering. So anyways, um, when I thought about this, when I was sitting in the bush, all the um, stuff that's been happening to my family, you know, as uh, the head of the family now, since my mom passed away on March the 5th, so us, we're all kind of alone. We have this alone feeling, you know, as a family. And, and my mom told me on her hospital bed, you know, to keep fighting, to keep helping people. And I said, yeah, I will, mom. So I've been still doing it, and I'm still doing it. Still looking out for the people and standing that way. And uh, that's what I thought about now is in the bush, you know. And that's when that uh, Bimad is when came to me. Because we want to live too. We hurt, but we want to live just like everybody else. We want to have the equal rights. We want to have our own housing. We want to have, you know, be able to be included in the equal rights of a human, in the dignity and worth of the human person. You know, that's how I looked at it in the bush. And uh, wondering, like, you know, why does this happen? I asked Nikan how they came up with Northern Starlight Grassroots Citizens of Saugeen for the name of their organization. It's so simple with us, eh? Because uh, one time we were all just um, talking about the chief uh, by a lake, and then we are saying, well, what shall we do? And then, you know, everybody just kind of laid on the ground, like, you know, talking and laying on the ground, because that's normally what we do. Eh? We'll just lay around and look up at the sky, because we, we like to watch the night skies, right? Mm-hmm. All the time we're looking up in the sky. So anyways, that's how we got we got the name. I said, hey, Starlight, like that, eh? That's why everybody started laughing. That's pretty well how it came about. 
by looking at the stars and you know talking away and you know I, I knew everybody was uh, honest about what they were saying when they were uh, on the ground. And how did you decide to build the cabin? How 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 did you decide on that project? Okay, how did we decide on that? This I have been on this movement for about ten years now. Okay, trying to get the people together, trying to you know tell them you know we got to make a change and whatever, and you know push that way, and then. Uh, how we came about making and moving on this change is it started off with a, a couple elders, okay, in, in our hometown of Savannah Lake, Ontario, an organized Indian settlement land of uh, Anishinaabe land. Okay, that's where I was living at the time, and there was two elders back then. There was a gentleman and there was a lady. I was uh, going to start building them their houses at the beginning, but the gentleman had to move because he got too sick, he had to be near a hospital and all that. So what he had done previous before he moved was that he went and blazed his own trees that he was going to start uh, cutting, building his log because we were going to help him build his log cabin, right? So he ended up getting sick. So that plan went uh, down the drain that time and, uh, and then we still had uh, the elder lady. But what happened was her was because um, we didn't have no uh, ways of getting uh, money to help her, you know, build her house to buy plywood boards and all that. We didn't have no money, no ways of getting funds. So what we tried to do in an effort to help this elder was we tried to uh, take down an old abandoned house that was left in Savant Lake by the chief and his family. And they had moved to the reserve and they left that abandoned house in Savant Lake. So, you know, I went and checked around and said, hey, there's good lumber here. I guess this could be usable, you know, like that, eh? And then uh, next thing, uh, there was five of us that decided to uh, all chip in and bring this house down to uh, build a lady, like some kind of makeshift shack, way better than the one she was in. But we got chased away from there. They told us that we were trespassing and we're vandalizing, you name it. They, told us that what we were doing and I said oh we were going to take this house down because it's abandoned to build this elder house but anyways we got into a big yelling match and then you know everybody laughed and we left it alone and uh, so anyways yeah that's what happened and then um, the house got burnt up and then the elder got frostbitten toes two years back to back so that's when we really got real pissed off then and then that's when I collected the main strong ones of our group and pulled them together and started talking to them about the seriousness of this situation and what the elder has asked me to do for her. So yeah, she got her uh, feet frostbitten and then something happened with her house and then uh, I ended up in jail and I ended up doing <laughs> house arrest for a year. And I wasn't going to get involved in this no more because I kind of gave up. And then exactly almost the following month, the year before, the elder came again, sent her son to come and get me. And I heard that knock on the door and I saw him standing there and I'm going, no, no, you know, like that, eh? But anyways, I opened the door and then that's when he told me, he goes, my mom wants to see you. So I said, oh, okay, okay. You know, I got back up, right? So I went there, then I went and sat with her. Then I knew she was going to ask, but I need to hear it from her verbally. So she uh, gave me tobacco, package of cigarettes, and then she asked me if I could help her with her house. 
took me a while because, you know, I have finished getting in trouble over this already, previous. And then I looked at her. I really looked at her. I said, yes, I will. That's when I took the cigarettes. Yeah, and that's when I went uh, and pulled uh, stronger people out of my group to help me to get started or make plans. And I asked everybody if they had money, and none of them said none. And then that's when I said, well, are we going to do it or not? And we flipped a penny in the air. I said, heads we will, tails we won't. Heads came up. So that's, that's how we got up and started, uh, you know, doing something. And the people I had, they were the strongest in mind to move forward, but their bodies were not the strongest in health to do this. But we had to work with them, eh? So that's how we started. And then a few people jumped on, and then we got it done. And then as we were making the cabin, again, because we started in late uh, November, winter time, people said that we were crazy to start it in winter. But, you know, we believed it. We believed that we can do it. That's why we went ahead and did it. And people are laughing at us, eh? Like saying, you guys are crazy to do this in the winter, you know? And then, But we did. We believed in... But actually what happened was the elder again got frostbitten toes on her on her feet again that, that year again. And this time I had to escort her to the hospital and that's when uh, her socks were kind of stuck to her, her toes. Then they tried to pull them apart. And that's when uh, she screamed, and I said, that's when I got really, it really hurt me in the heart when I heard her scream like that. That's when I started just swearing away in the hospital because I was so mad. She got hospitalized most of the winter, which was a blessing to us. So that way, you know, she didn't have to come home to that chicken coop, and we were trying to get this house done really quick as we can, eh? But we kept running out of uh, tools, or we didn't have enough money for this, for that, so... When the guys were working on the house, I went to the nearby towns of Sulakot, Ignis, on the highways, protesting in the winter for donations. You know, I did all that. And I pretty well just went on my own because I had to hitchhike all the time too because I don't have no wheels. I had to hitchhike to these nearby towns to, you know, protest, get money, get donations. You know, I did everything I can to get this going. And then I would make a few bucks, maybe 40, 60 bucks. I'd ho rush home right away with, you know, a couple of boxes of nails. Okay, this is what you guys need. You know, like that. Eh? That's, I constantly did that. Yeah. But it was hard. It was a hard winter. It took us seven months to get this house up for the building material stuff. Like the logs and peeling and the manual hard labor of it was done by us. And that was done. But when we needed to use the nails, spikes, or stuff like that, that's when we ran into trouble, and that's when we had to go out and, you know, start uh, asking for donations. But we kept on, eh? So we eventually we uh, did get uh, her house up, and then she got out of the hospital, and she was able to uh, pull out her money, too, because, you know, she was in, in the hospital, but her checks kept coming in. That's how we got the extras was through her, because when we told her, like, we need this and we need this to finish right away, that's when she said, well, here, use it, use this. You know, she used her money, too, to help us, but she had to wait till she got out of the hospital to come and help us. And when you were going around to the different communities and cities, were people willing to give money and supplies and stuff? A few were supportive, but not a whole lot. I didn't go into the cities or nothing because I live way up north, like in the bush, where I, we're situated every which direction you go, you need at least an hour travel time. 
there's not really much traffic out there. You could stand out in the highway and maybe two cars will go by in two hours or something. Over there, it's hard. Over there, you do need vehicles because of the distances of the traveling between town to town. So um, that's why I had to hitchhike most times. Yeah, I didn't uh, go to the cities because the closest city to us would be oh, Thunder Bay and Winnipeg are pretty well about the same distances from where we're at. Mm. And they're a good five, six hours away. At some point, Nikan connected with a Toronto-based organization, the Canadian chapter of the International League of People's Struggle, or ILPS. I asked her how that came about. Because I have a friend in Six Nations, eh? And me and her always just talk, right? And I used to cry on her shoulder about, you know, the hardships of this movement and tell her everything, how I'm feeling. And then she phoned me one day and she goes, you know what, uh, Dar, I've been listening to you and, uh, you know, why not go give this uh, conference a chance? I said, well, what's that? And then uh, I said, I don't even have money to get there anyways. Why should I? You know, I'm not going to thumb it all the way to Toronto. You know, that's hard. And then she goes, no, 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 just listen like that. I said, okay, what? She goes, there's this conference called The Right to Resist, The Right to Exist. And she says, I know these people, the ILPS, and they're pretty good people. They're helpful. And, uh, you know, give them a chance, you know, to hear you out and just take that step, she says. Eh? And I told her, you know, if I can get there, I will take that step because I'm at my wit's end about everything anyways. I said, I'll give it this last shot to reach my hand out. And that's when uh, everything started flowing. So that's how it all started. And then sure enough, they paid my ticket to uh, Toronto and got me on the panel. And yeah, that's how I got to speak out and tell my story. And while I was in Toronto telling my story, and then I'm thinking, oh man, these people are not going to hear me. They're, you know, they're not going to care about some Indian problem from the North, you know, like that, eh? I had my doubts. Yeah, but I, all I did was go out, step out, and tell the truth from my heart. I was so scared, too, because of all the people. I was shaking inside, but I, I prayed, and I asked the Creator, just help me tell the truth here, how it is. So that's how it happened. Since uh, I actually met the group, and I felt a lot better by meeting them face-to-face, because you know, sometimes when you talk to people on the phone, you don't know who you're talking to, you don't know if you're getting tricked, you don't know if you're being recorded, you don't know, you know, anything like that can happen. So I finally met these people face to face and I looked at them and I said, okay, you know, I can move forward now. After they heard my story, we uh, sat together and all talked about how to move forward and then that's when they came up with the fundraising thing because I have no idea about fundraising or anything except doing it standing and holding a sign but because they had other ways of uh, doing this and then I agreed with them okay like you know whatever we have to do to move and whatever we need to do to expose this problem I said you know I'm in and then they fundraised through Indiegogo to uh, help me with my house because I told them I was homeless too at the time I was homeless, well, pretty well, most of the summers, I'm always homeless. In the wintertime, I tried to hit a city and, you know, sleep on floors, you know, like kind of couch surfing all the time in the wintertime or just living on assistance for three to four months because we're always getting cut off anyways. You can't, you know, really have a place in the city without getting cut off because you're always renting slum places and your landlord's on you for rent all the time. And meanwhile, it's the welfare the provincial system that controls these checks, but uh, it makes it look bad on the Indian. It's a, re- a repetitive, violent cycle under the provincial system, how the off-reserve people live in the cities. 
And so has your house been built now? Yeah, the cabin is built now, yes. Now I got a place, you know, I can call home. It's got no running water, it's got no electricity, but that's fine by me. So we're going to go back to the trap line in about a couple of days, and uh, we're going to go land clear more and continue on. And I'm hoping and praying, you know, we get enough donations to start uh, another house. But this one will not be out of logs, but it will be out of uh, plywood as a meeting place and start inviting people. Youth camp is what I like to do because, uh, you know, I love children. And if I could get a youth camp, a small one, just to begin, you know, test it out, see how it goes see if the kids like it but this is just the beginning of it the youth are more than welcome and people from other countries if they want to come and see our area i'll help them in that way just to share the land and share the knowledge and mainly teach our knowledge our culture to our own people who have lost it along the way that kind of frame thinking yeah I asked Nikan what she thought might be necessary to create a change of heart in those people standing in the way of she and other off-reserve people getting the resources they need and are entitled to. You know what? I think they need to be stood in front of a judge and spank. <laughs> I know that's my own thinking as a clan mother. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know yet. We're, we're are moving into that right now, and we'll see with that chapter, I guess. Next, I asked her to connect her own struggles to the larger picture of things the Canadian government had done over the years and continues to do. Well, I don't really know about that, you know? I don't really know about that, and I'm not really educated in those kind of departments about the Canadian politics and all that. All I know is the Canadian politics is a bunch of crap. These politicians and everybody should come in the north and live in the ground with us so that they can know what we're going through to understand the hardship of the Nishnabe that tries to make it after losing his culture and traditional lands to forestry and mining. That's what we're facing right now. And um, the Canadian politics, um, I would think, I'm not sure, and don't take me for on this word, with our convention, our convention uh, beats the federal government. Our convention beats the, the provincial system because we deal with the queen. Our, our government deals with the queen. So that's my understanding of it. Don't quote me on that to be true. <laughs> so, but that's why a lot of these things, when I say things, uh, because the leaders don't talk to me, I'm always grasping at trying to find true facts. That's where I stand. Because I'm not a paid spokesperson as well. I don't get paid for what I do. I struggle and walk what I do. Yeah. Just like yesterday, I had to hitchhike it just to get some stuff settled. Then tomorrow, I'm hitchhiking back again, you know? Like, that's that's the life I live. And then when I move back, I'm going to the trap line to start clear-cutting again for this particular uh, plywood house. And this next house, you said, is a sort of like a gathering place? Yeah, a gathering place. I want to make a gathering place for the people to share, share what we were put here to share on Earth. That's what I'm trying to do. And, you know, to be understood as Anishinaabe and why we are the way we are. Not the way the eyes of the world sees Anishinaabe today. Where do you hope things will be in a few years' time? Well, you know what? I'm hoping all the young people with the families that I'm, I'm leading right now, I'm hoping that they will get their houses. I'm hoping the youth will see 
feel better about the future than what we did. I'm hoping the youth will see that education is very important and that they can change their life for the better. I'm hoping our people, Nishnabek, will see that life can be better, that it, it doesn't have to be repetitive and violent as it is, as it was. We don't know that. But I'm hoping our youth will wake up for a better world, for a better life for themselves in the future. I'm hoping they will look after their kids, you know, their children. I'm hoping, like, I'm hoping so much for the Nishnabe. I cry for the Nishnabe sometimes. My heart cries for these people, but I can't change them. It is up to them to wake up themselves. But uh, I continue on with my own belief to step up and help our people and uh, believe in them. And hopefully that they believe in themselves as well to make a change. That's my hope for the future. People tell me, <laughs> they laugh at me when I say that. Because it's not going to change for probably another two or three generations, that's what they say. But I'm in this generation, 2013, right now, and that is my hope for uh, the future generations, my grandchildren. That's that's my hope that, you know, something, something is good got to come out. Something, something good and some belief of hope and faith. That's where I stand and believe as a, a mother and a grandmother, sister, auntie, yeah. I think that's all the questions that I have. Is there anything else that you think I should know or the listeners should know that we haven't talked about yet? Just like I said, I got a lot of things I could say and, you know, and more in depth. I guess right now what I'm trying to do for myself is once uh, I get situated on my trap line, I'm going to be doing trapping and then I'm going to be uh, writing a book as well. I'll be writing a book. Actually, I've already started it, but uh, I need to get settle down and sit in one place to do this and that's the only way to communicate to the people is you know write a book for the next generation maybe they'll read it you know who knows and you know peace to the world and you know live and let live and but be happy and do it well yep well thank you so much for talking with me this morning you have been listening to my interview with Darlene Nikan, the leader of Northern Starlight Citizens of Saugeen, a grassroots group of off-reserve Ojibwe people in northwestern Ontario. Though the Bimidasawin project has no single website, you can learn more about it and also donate by going to Indiegogo.com and searching for the phrase Gathering Place. That's Indiegogo.com and searching for the phrase Gathering Place. Or you can find this episode's page on rabble.ca or talkingradical.ca for further links. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's talkingradical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.
Yeah.